Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Josh Smith Show. The Josh Smith Show is brought to you by Paragon Kilns. Paragon Kilns are some of the fastest heating and most accurate kilns in the world today. Uh, I, in my own custom knife-making business, and so many knife-makers that I know, use a Paragon Kiln uh, just to increase the accuracy and the consistency of which their knives are heat-treated. Check out the Paragon Kilns at paragonweb.com. Also brought to you by Montana Knife Company. Montana Knife Company knives are working knives for working people. All Montana Knife Company knives are 100% American-made, hand-finished, and hand-sharpened. We here at Montana Knife Company believe that manufacturing can be done here in the U.S., and that's where our knives are built. Check out MontanaKnifeCompany.com, and we are also on Instagram at Montana Knife Company as well as Facebook. Also brought to you by Maritime Knife Supply. Maritime Knife Supply is a place I buy my belts, uh, buy a lot of my sandpaper. They also sell steel, grinders, heat treat ovens, just about anything else you can imagine. Maritime Knife Supply is located in Canada, so even though it takes a little bit longer to ship your stuff down here, you can take advantage of the exchange rate, uh, which is actually a pretty good deal when you're putting in a fairly big order. Check out MaritimeKnifeSupply.com and at MaritimeKnifeSupply on Instagram and Facebook. Let's get to the show. Today, I interviewed Don Fogg. If you're a custom knife maker and you don't know who Don Fogg is, this is definitely a show you're going to want to listen to. Don's an absolute legend and icon in the knife making industry. Uh, in this day and age of Instagram and, and social media, some of these older makers, some of these legends that came before us don't really get a lot of recognition, uh, but they definitely should. Uh, it's, it's really important that we know where we came from and how we got to where we are as, a, you know, as an industry. Um, I'm in a really unique spot where I'm old enough to have actually been friends with some of these legends like, like Don, um, but I'm young enough that hopefully I'm going to be able to pass on some of their knowledge, some of their stories, and, and just talk about who they were maybe long after some of these guys are gone. And, and frankly, this is exactly the number one reason I started this podcast, and Don was my first call about a year ago, just asking him if he'd be willing to let me interview and record him because I, I think it's critical to have these guys' stories down uh, kind of for, for history it's really nothing about myself or my own career or any, any, there's no, there's no selfish part of this here. Uh, it, it's just a hundred percent belief in the fact that I, I think our masters and the people that came before us need to be remembered. Frankly, I see way too many talented knife makers out there today that, that have no idea who Don Fogg or Steve Schwarzer or Jimmy Fikes or, um, Gosh, uh, Jim Schmidt, Buster Warinsky, Bill Moran. I mean, you can the, the list goes on. And even guys today that are active, like Larry Fagan. Um, if you don't know any of those names or some of those names that I just mentioned, um, and trust me, there's a bunch more. And and some of them actually, I'm hoping to get on the podcast. Do some research. Uh, Google their names up. Try to find it. You know, old Blade Magazine articles or Knives Annuals with their pictures in them. Um, I. We, we don't really have a quote-unquote school of bladesmithing. I mean, we do to learn how to make knives, but 
a lot of times the history about how we got here isn't taught. And uh, I think I think we have a responsibility to know what these guys went through in the 70s and 80s to get us to where we are, you know, now. So uh, it's my honor uh, to interview Don Fogg. So I hope you enjoyed as much as I enjoyed talking to him. Ladies and gentlemen, Don Fogg. All right, how you doing, Don? Uh, pretty good. Good. Things Thank- going up in Montana. Uh, you know, pretty good. You'd never know it was January. Um, <laughs> not a, not a bit of snow. We haven't had snow really since really before Christmas, and uh, here recently it's been more like spring than winter. Well, I appreciate you joining me today, and um, you know, you're you're actually just the second interview I've done on this podcast. Um, in fact, I I just kind of released it this morning. I haven't even actually announced it when we're recording this here, but. Uh, um, so this, this is pretty exciting for me. I, I interviewed Rick Dunkerley here, uh, a week ago. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I kind of thought it was right to start with him since he's the guy that got me into all this, but, uh, I kind of quickly wanted to transition into kind of some of the legends of knife making. It's been something I know, I think I talked to you about a year ago about, yeah. And back then, honestly, I didn't even know what a podcast was or how to record anybody's voices, but this is something I wanted to do. And before I even knew about podcasting, I, I wanted to, um, I, I don't, I feel like I'm kind of in a unique position where, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm old enough to have known you guys and been kind of involved with you guys when you guys were really cranking as far as the, the knife makers that, um, kind of brought all this back to the U S but young enough to hopefully be able to kind of impart some stories and, and, you know, tell some of these guys over the years, you know, about you guys, once everyone's gone, you know, if, if I live that long. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, uh, I first met you in Atlanta and I think you were 16 or so, maybe younger. Yeah. So, I think, I think, uh, that year I was 15. That's when I tested for my journeyman. 15. Yeah. Right. Right. <clears throat> yeah. So you do bridge the gap. Yeah, exactly. So let's kind of, let's go back and start kind of in the beginning for you. Where, where were you born and raised on? I was born in Portland, Maine. And, uh, my family moved to Northern New Hampshire, uh, when I was about three, maybe four. And, uh, I grew up in Northern New Hampshire went to school at the University of New Hampshire and lived there most of my life until, uh, you know, I moved to Alabama. And I lived in Alabama for a few years and shortly, short time in California and I'm back home in Maine. So what, when you said you went to school there in New Hampshire, were you talking high school or are you talking, did you also go to college or? Yeah, I went to university. What'd you study? <laughs> uh, English. I was an English lit major. Oh, really? Yep. Were you uh, thinking you wanted to be a book writer or journalist or what? Yeah, I always thought I'd write books. 
Yeah. I haven't got around to it. But. Yeah. You should, you should get on that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of, I'll put it on my list. <laughs> yeah. So uh, how, how is it at, at what point and what age kind of, um, I guess I should ask like what I'm trying to kind of figure out what led you into the craft and the art, the artistic ability you have, like as a kid or maybe through high school, were you, what kind of things were you into? What, what, you know, hobbies or were you into art or, or anything with metalworking no. or anything at that point? No, I mean, I like to read books. Uh, I got into it. I, uh, I, w- I went to Vietnam, um, 68, 69. And when I came back, uh, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I tried to try to several things, went back to school, went to graduate school, uh, ran a couple of businesses. Sure. But I couldn't, I couldn't find anything that, uh, well, that I felt was going to lead anywhere. Sure. I just kind of, I just, you know, had, uh, had some demons in my head actually that, uh, made me, uh, rather unpleasant to be around. So. Right. So what, what, (laughs) what branch were you in when you went to Vietnam? I was in the Marine Corps. Was that a, were you drafted into that or? Nope. Nope. I volunteered. Did you? Uh, was that right in the beginning or was that kind of after things had been going for a while and you decided to do that? Of the war, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it was uh, at the point where you didn't have any choice. I see. The choices were uh, go in the service or go to Canada. Right. And, uh, I didn't, I thought the war was, uh, was a mess. I was on campus while all the protests and everything were going on. I had, uh, I had my doubts about how the, you know, about how the war was being run and, and what the government was telling us and not telling us. And, sure. But, you know, it came down to, uh, you know, do I believe in this country or, or do I pick another country to live in? Right. And, uh, you know, being a, being a student of history and, and I, I think that, you know, this country is kind of a, is a unique, mm-hmm. um, and it's, uh, you know, when it, when the constitution was adopted and, and, uh, the bill of rights declared that was a first in the world. Yeah. And, and so I, I went with my beliefs and sure I, it was a choice of four years in the Navy or two years in the army or the Marine Corps. So I cho- chose the Marine Corps. Sure. So. It's uh it's incredible for someone my age and especially with what's happened in our country and the world today to think back to those decisions and those times back then, whether, whether a person was, drafted and basically forced to go or, or volunteered kind of involuntarily volunteered, like with, with your situation, it just, it's incredible, um, to think about. Not, I I think the times are not much different. Um, 
you have to decide what you believe in and and uh, and and stand by that decision. I uh, I still believe in this country, although I have. <laughs> well, just because we have, I haven't seen much to give it hope, but. <laughs> Well, the, the, I think anyway, the politics, we don't go into politics. Yeah. Like Devin Thomas always used to say, I do better when we just stick to knives, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but I think we do. I don't think it changes the fact that even though it seems like on both sides of the aisle, no politics involved here, I think we can agree. There's a lot of jackasses that are running it right now, but and, a lot of bad decisions being made and a lot of self-interest. However, that doesn't change the fact that in my mind, we still live in an incredible country and, and the, uh, what the framers laid out and a lot of the things that they, you know, laid out in those documents still do hold true, even though it seems like we're at times trying to change them. But it was quite an experiment and quite an idea for a country back then, you know. Yeah, it was first time in the world that people stood up and said we'll rule ourselves yeah yeah and, and, and we had basic rights yeah before that it was it was the king who decided uh well the dictator so it seems these days anyway we, we, we like we, we, we we're getting sidetracked here. yeah talk about that. Right. so so how is so it anyway how is it right, when so you when you uh so, so where did, where did kind of your first introduction to whether it's blacksmithing or, or knife making or bladesmithing kind of where, where did that spark okay. kind of ignite? That's good. That, that's good. I, uh, so I'm wandering around trying to figure out what to do with my life and I sold a small business and it gave me enough money to, uh, sit and not have to work until I figured it out. And in that process, I started, uh, I had a friend that was running a blacksmith shop in Portsmouth, New Hampshire at the Strawberry Bank uh, restoration project. And I started bringing him coffee and hanging out and watching the work. And it wasn't too long before I asked him if he'd, you know, take me on or teach me no pay, just uh, not even really an apprentice. I was just kind of a gopher, and he'd give me a lesson every once in a while. Sure. And that was, that was Peter Hapney. And he had a show, a craft show, uh, in the summer that he was obligated to keep his shop open because it was a tourist, you know, deal, and he was in a in a restoration place. So uh, to do the craft show, he had to find somebody to run the shop. And that was my payback for learning to hit iron. Sure. And so I'm running the shop and, you know, you get the peanut gallery comes in and out and it's, it's really a strange, these tourist things are strange. But I was trying to get some work done, and uh, I met Jimmy Fife. I was I was doing I was trying to I had actually had an order, and although I hadn't been blacksmithing that long, and it was for a uh, 
a gate closer that was a scroll with a rock in the middle. And I knew how to do a basket scroll, but I didn't know how to get the rock in the middle. Yeah. I didn't even know how to do the basket scroll. Anyway, I'm working. And Jimmy chipped in and I took a break and we, we sat down and, and he showed me his iron work, which was medieval, just incredible work. Mm-hmm. And he was just around checking in other smiths, I guess, making the tour. So anyway, we struck up a friendship and I don't know how much longer. It wasn't that much longer. I had, I ended up uh, having my own shop uh, maybe a year or two. I had my own shop uh, up in the uh, Lakes region in New Hampshire. And he came up for a visit. And we started going back and forth. And, you know, friendships develop. What, so he shows up what, one time. What year was this, Don? And how old were you at that time, kind of when this was going on? Hmm. Well, it was probably 1977. Okay. I mean, I, I would have been, uh, I'm going to have to do the math. I'm 74 now. Uh, I'll be 75 this year. I can't do it. I, I was probably <laughs> 24, 25. Okay. Maybe a little older. I can't remember. But well, anyway, I had my. You're just, sorry to interrupt you, but. Um, I mean, that's, that's quite an accomplishment if you think about nowadays to have been to school, been to Vietnam, and then to have, have done well enough in your business to have been able to sell it and kind of get to the point you were already. You know, you that, that's, that's well, pretty impressive. I, yeah. Uh, yeah, I wasn't rich. Right. I, I, I just, you know, I had enough to get by. Sure. And to do what I wanted to do. Sure. And, uh, but I had to make money with my, my craft if I was going to do it. So right. anyway, I set the shop up in Laconia and he comes up, he'd been up two or three times and then he came up, I think it was in, uh, it might've been, it was in the winter, I think. And he had a issue of blade magazine and, I didn't even know there was a magazine. And uh, he found out that there actually was a, a knife show in uh, in Connecticut at the time. And uh, he asked me, we ought to go down and check this out. Well, I didn't, I'd never worked with high carbon steel. I never made a knife. I was just trying to learn how to make a living as a blacksmith. <laughs> Yeah, it's not not an easy task. Wasn't working. Yeah, <laughs> every every job was a, was I was learning and not making much money at it. So anyway, so we go, we round up a friend of his uh, who turned out to be Jim Schmidt. Jim was living in Upper State, New York, and we all drive down to this. Uh, I think it was Gastonbury, and uh, went to our first knife show. Walked around, met people that I had, was have been friends with all my life at that one show. Uh, Mel Pardue was, was uh, comes to mind, but there were a couple other guys there, and got a look at it uh, and realized that this was actually a market. And Jimmy came back and 
on the way back, he said, we can do this. Huh. So I said, well, you're going to have to show me because I don't know. His background had been, he made, he worked with Hank Reinhardt down in Atlanta making uh, weapons for the uh, Society for Creative Anachronisms. So he knew a lot about medieval weaponry. Sure. And he was, he was a good smith and he ran, he worked in a, he learned the basics in a practical shop. He knew how to heat treat. He gave me lessons and I started. What, what, what I, point in your knife or what point in the knife making was Jim Schmidt at at that point? Cause you said you went to the show yeah, with Jim. I was, I was, yeah, I, we did go to the show with Jim, but Jim was already making knives. He was making these, uh, carbon steel snake handled carved knives. Um, and we were, I think he was looking for a market. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, it, it was early times. It's a little gray. It's a long time ago. Right. Right. Uh, uh, anyway, we, we decided we'd meet in, uh, on a regular basis. And, and so the halfway point for all of us was uh, Jimmy's shop in Orange, Mass. So Schmidt and I would drive to Orange, and basically I sat on the sidelines and watched them sh- show their stuff so, uh, until I got my skills up enough to be proud to proud to show them something. Sure. You know, um, and then we found out uh, the New York show started and we all decided to book a table at the New York show. So, um, and there we met the top makers at the time. Uh, and that was an eye opener. It was a small show it was in a gallery at, uh, it was a Sheridan. Were you exhibiting at the show there in New York? Yep. First show, just went and set up table. What what kind of knives were you making at that point? Had well, you had you guys started forging any Damascus or were they carbon steel? Yeah. Yeah. I started out with Damascus. Oh really? So uh, you got Bill, right into it. Yeah. Yeah. And Bill you know, Bill Moran was uh was the only game in town. I guess I can't remember uh Bagwell and Hastings were soon to follow him. And they had a unique item. Uh, we were competing with the stainless, you know, knives at the time, you know, forged was the old timey way and stainless with the Bob Loveless, that was the future. Sure. So, how, how, we didn't see it that way. How, we didn't see it that way. Right. <laughs> how did, how, how was it that you guys decided, I mean, if you, you're going to decide to start making knives, but how is it that you decided or even learned what Damascus was or that that was going to be your, your path? Uh, well, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy was, taught me how to, to weld the steel. Mm-hmm. Um, he had uh, the Abana conference that year. Uh, there were several guys that had the blacksmiths that had showed up 
with Damascus pieces. There's a guy named Bo Hickory and Daryl Meyer. Uh, Rob Hudson may have been in there too. I can't mm-hmm. remember. But they had all learned on their own. And so Jimmy came back and he said, I can do that stuff just to forge well. So he started it. I came down and learned. Schmidt came over and learned. And uh, it was all, you know, a lot of a lot of mistakes along the way. Right. You know, right. You know, fi- finding and finding materials and and it was it was all trial and error at the beginning. Sure. But it was it was a, a hook. You know, it was different from what everything else on the table looked like. And it was interesting, you know, for me, it was absolutely fascinating. And uh, I I started and then it just takes over. I started exploring all we had. We didn't have much for pattern development in the beginning. It was mostly wood grain and, you know, incised patterns. Mm-hmm. But, but uh then I started seeing what the steel would do. When I started working with it, uh, I could see uh, how how many variations you could you could actually get, and how visually attractive it was. And and I just got hooked on it. Did uh, you did you know at that point that Damascus had been something that had been made? You know. Oh yeah. Way uh, earlier for, in times first, and. Some of the shotgun barrels yeah. and different stuff like that. Oh yeah, yeah. I had a Damascus barrel on a shotgun when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, they couldn't sell it because everybody was afraid to put modern powder in it. But right. That was my bird. That was my bird gun, and it was gorgeous. Mm. Um, yeah. It, it and and once I started, of course, I didn't know anything, so it was constantly hitting books, buying buying uh, there was a there was a book uh stone's glossary of arms and armor that was my bible for years because it had pictures of weapons from all over the world and different blade shapes handle configurations techniques you know it was just a you know i just like eye candy for me and then uh yeah and then there was a a small magazine that was put out that was uh, it was a kind of a, a catalog museum museum arms I think it was called and I used to subscribe to that and get it and read the books you know everything sure. I could read on the subject which it wasn't much right. and uh, you know it was sort of like bootstrapping up the whole process mm-hmm. how did you uh, but, um well, and that's and when it comes to those books like that, I mean, I, I have a book called Arms and Armor of Iran, and si- yeah. similar where it's just filled with whether it's a sword or a mace or a conjar or or, or, or just you know just the body armor they wore. <clears throat> it's just mind-boggling to think about when you really sit and think about, or if you go to the Metropolitan Museum or something like that, or the Wallace Collection to, to think about what was being built back then and how they were even doing it and what tools they were yeah. using, you know? Well, the more you, the more you learn about the craft, the more you can go back and appreciate how they, 
you know, how they did it or what, you know, it, it, it makes, it, it was very interesting. It, mm. it opened up a whole new world for me. Sure. And, and, and it was just what I needed for my head because I found out very quickly that you can't uh, have, uh, you can't be thinking about something else while you're pounding on something. That's so uh, interesting you say that because that's, here recently there's been several different people that have gotten into knife making or, or, or blacksmithing. And a lot of them are some of our current day veterans that have come back from Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, and actually that's something I'm going to be trying to do more of in my shop is getting some of those kind of people out here, even if they are not ever going to become knife makers or quote unquote professional blacksmiths or bladesmiths just to be able to go fire up a forge out in the, in the garage, maybe in the evening and just beat on steel and make a hook for their house or, or, or whatever. Um, it's definitely a stress relief and, and, and a kind of a, a way to just get your mind away from, from anything that's really stressing you out. Yeah. Yeah. It works. It, it, it's the, the lesson I got early on and I, what made it so attractive to me was it was, intellectually interesting it took me back to the you know every culture in in the world was now a uh, a resource and you know it went on and it never i never got to the end of it i mean you, you go through the through the uh process and you know all of a sudden you have to learn you know science the science suddenly becomes relevant when you start heat treating and you're talking about phase changes and, and you know, you learn more and more about what you're doing and it's, it, I never tired of that. Sure. Uh, now in that, and, in that first original kind of time frame, Don, were you, would you say you were mostly just inspired and, and, and into the, the creation of the Damascus or were you, were you really kind of enthralled by the whole process of, of of the art of actually making the knife once you're just dealing with the piece of steel um uh, or, or did the knife making yeah. portion kind of come a little later was it just an excitement of the steel making in the beginning uh well in the beginning i didn't have a power hammer i was making it by hand so it was uh, let's say a bodybuilding <laughs> <laughs> uh now, I, I, what attracted to me to me initially was the ability to quiet quiet my mind. I had to, you know, had all these incessant thoughts that I couldn't quiet, mm-hmm. other than, you know, through negative behavior. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that was the first step, and it the the. Uh, craft you, you don't set up uh, well, I didn't set out to be an artist I didn't but it, that has never been my goal uh, I want to I, I guess my motivation was to stay interested do things that interested me and, sure. and and I tapped into something that that interested it was interesting in every way it provided me uh, uh, mental calm. It challenged me because, man, there's nothing. It, it, it was learning something from scratch, and there's no shortcut. 
sure. you, you've got to put the work in to do it, and you're rewarded by having uh, see the work in front of you. It's not abstract; it's it's concrete, and you can and it doesn't lie. Sure. So it, it gives you the way to to you know, to, to uh, it gives you feedback. Right. You know, and a lot of I think that's a lot of what the I found missing when I, I couldn't find what it was that fed me. You know, money didn't do it. I, uh, you know, uh, there wasn't I, I wasn't into I wasn't a social person. So, you know, but finding something that I that could reflect myself there, you know, work that actually gave me honest feedback about who I was and, and what I knew and what I needed to know. Sure. Um, you could really lose yourself and, in all of it. Well, I'll find yourself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So where I didn't realize, obviously I didn't realize any of that. That comes, that comes in hindsight, but sure. the initial part is just the fumbling around with tools, you know, right. and then, then figuring out what you needed, you know, and then starting thinking about the process and then finding what you needed to, to complete it the way you wanted to. And, uh, sure. Yeah. So it just built on itself. It's like, it's like setting up shop. How do you set up shop? Well, if you have a lot of money to throw away, you just go buy everything. But if you're, I used to do, you know, every job I had, I, I save a little of the money to buy the tool that I really needed to do the, you know, to do the work. It's like everybody else. If you're starting out, you, you, uh, yeah, anyway, I lost my thought there. So when you, when you guys were, you guys were kind of progressing along now at this point, you were going to, um, I mean, now you're starting to go to some pretty serious knife shows with New York. Um, where, where are we at in the, in relation to, kind of some of the stuff that was going on with with Bill Moran, um, you know, because I, you know, I always like to remind people back, you know, back then there was no internet, there was no social medias, there, um, you know, there were, there were different things going on in different parts of the country, um, different ideas about. Not really, not really, Josh. <laughs> back... That was, uh, that, that hadn't happened yet. Oh, really? And no. And there wasn't, there wasn't any, there were like, I think there were two shows, maybe they had gun shows that had knives in them, sure. but two knife shows, the guild had been set up at that time and that was out in Kansas city. And then the, the New York show and then uh, Gastonbury was probably the first and I'm not sure what else was going on, but it was very local, very, re- very regional in terms of the craft. Uh, the only organized crafts were just starting in the sixties. Um, so, uh, you had a lot of, you know, a lot of people dropping out and trying to find out, find their life that, you know, right outside the, outside the mainstream. So anyway, the craft development started and the blacksmiths, uh, had, figured that the only way to learn the craft was to get together and teach each other. So they had started hammerings and they were, 
you know, there had been, a, there were a few around, like they had a, they had an actually had a national organization and they had uh, these national conferences and people would come in and teach what they'd learned. Mm-hmm. It was not like we had a lot of masters to, to draw from. There weren't any. Uh, in the blacksmithing, there was, I can't even remember his name now. Forgive me. Uh, one guy that worked in the Ellen shop. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I'm having an old man. Forgive me. That's all right. I forgot. Um, so Jimmy and Schmidt in one of our meetings decided we needed the same thing. We needed to get people together so we could learn from each other, not mm-hmm. just have a little bubble. It wouldn't go anywhere if it was just three or four guys. Sure. So, um, so we set up a, uh, a hammer in uh, for bladesmiths at, at the uh, Ashokan, uh, New York. It was a, a craft community, and uh, we rented the space and had our first hammer in there. And and, uh, and it drew people from all over. Uh, uh, Steve Schwarzer came up from Florida. Mel Pardue came up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Al Pendry came. Then we had uh, uh, Danny. Uh, oh God, trouble with being old. That's all right. Ragney, Danny, oh, Danny Maragney, mm-hmm. Phil Baldwin. Uh, there were a bunch of people that lived all over and jumped on it and came. And so we had a really exciting conference and I, and it was like learning. It was like sipping from a fire hose because everybody was attacking these problems differently. Um, And so sharing it, we all grew, you know, exponentially. Sure. And so we did that. We did that every year. Moran came up. Um, Anyway, uh, that was before the ABS. I think he he went and took the idea and ran. He knew it needed a structure, mm-hmm. so uh, he he uh, got together with VR uh, Hughes and and uh, really developed the organization out of it. And for people who he don't know, pe- for people who don't know that maybe are listening to this that aren't really you know, versed in the knife making world, Bill Moran, B.R. Hughes, they were kind of the people behind Bill was, uh, B.R. Hughes was the bladesmith behind starting the American Bladesmith Society. Um, B.R. Hughes was a writer, um, kind of was the, I guess what the guy that kind of marketed it, right. Um, yeah, marketed, uh, marketed Bill Moran. And, and well, he, he, he was good about, he got, he had, he was a, a, a good enough writer to get in the magazines and he presented, you know, uh, he presented our work. Bill, Bill got favored because he was the first. But, right. Uh, right. So that was kind anyway. of the start of the, of the, that portion of, in that part of the world with the, uh, with the American Bladesmith Society. But, um, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah. It kind of seems like back then, through some of those articles and whatnot, Bill Moran was maybe getting credit as, you know, one of the the first or, you know, first guys to be forging or making Damascus or whatever. But but in, in reality, really, 
you guys were doing your stuff on really a pretty advanced level at that point. I mean, with through some of these hammer-ins that you guys were doing together and, and, and I mean, that was such a smart thing for you guys to be meeting and sharing each other's ideas instead of, you know, it would have been just as easy to think that you're the only guy in the country doing it and to try to keep it to yourself, you know? Yeah. Well, that would have been counterproductive. Mm -hmm. Uh, One, you wouldn't grow very fast. And two, there'd be no market for what you got. You'd just be a curiosity. Mm -hmm. So in order to, in order to develop a place to sell your wares, you needed to have enough of them to attract people. Was that a conscious decision at that point? Yeah. You you guys were kind of talking about that, that we need to build, build this. Yeah. Uh, Otherwise it it becomes a hobby and you can't afford it. Sure. You know, so, and, 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 you know, none of us were geared that way. Sure. So, yeah, no, uh, very conscious decision. Uh, and we worked together. Uh, now, Bill Bill was the first guy to demonstrate making Damascus in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, uh, I think it was an uh, early blacksmith convention in, uh, in Lumpkin, Georgia. And uh, he showed up and demonstrated uh, and some of the early blacksmiths, Daryl Meyer was there. And, sure. Oh, and a bunch of guys. So, so, and then Bill was a member of the Knifemakers Guild. So he presented that at the guild show. That's where the word first got out. Oh. So, yeah. Now, was there, so was there kind of a rivalry at all at that point? Yet I know, you know, down the road, it seemed like there became a little bit of rivalry for some people. I wouldn't say all and, and, uh, and, you know, maybe some egos and stuff between like the ABS and the guild. And when I say the ABS, I mean, some members, some people, you you know, obviously I don't want to speak for everybody. And especially nowadays, it seems like we're, you know, nobody really cares if you forge or you grind a blade or whatever you do, um, Everybody kind of has their own niche, but back then, was that was that something that had kind of developed yet, or was that a little later once the ABS started to kind of grow and become more of a, I don't know if you'd want to call them a competitor of the of the guild, but a different option for guild members to be a part of. Uh, no, you could be a. It wasn't. It wasn't the guild. It was uh, there was a a rivalry. Of, of methods mm-hmm. and if you if you were a grinder you were different it, it, it were different from somebody who did hot work mm-hmm. and for some reason it may be political maybe personal that started getting Moran and Loveless started going at each other in the in the limited magazines that we had available mainly through BR, probably writing for, for Bill, but, mm-hmm. um, and it got to be, there, there was some hostility. Anytime, anytime you try to introduce something new, it's gonna, it's gonna meet resistance. Sure. And basically the new in this case <laughs> was the old. You're right. 
Right. It's not like you guys were doing something that hadn't ever been done ever. It just was yeah. new, new to the U.S. maybe. Yeah. And, 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 you know, anyway, that was where that, you know, anytime you get people together, you're going to get politics and fighting. Right. And unfortunately that became part of it. I, I really uh, didn't have time for it in my life. And when it, when it got to be too political for me, you know, the phone calls in the middle of the, you know, after <laughs> eight o'clock, let's say, uh, I just, uh, I backed away from it all. Yeah. Uh, it just didn't interest me. I didn't care. So now you guys, I mean, you know, in a relatively, cause I remember seeing, you know, I started making knives in 1992 um, right. and there were already knives and well, I don't know if they're, yeah, knives annuals or, or at least blade magazines, but, but the, the patterns in the Damascus, the level of the Damascus at that point was already pretty incredible. What you guys, I mean, you guys advanced really quite quickly. Um, especially when you consider no YouTube, you know, no, you know, ability to Google questions. I mean. For, for having basically have to figure it out on your own or or wait till you get together once or twice a year um the the rate at which you guys improved and and brought the brought your your um I don't know the complicated Damascus patterns up was was pretty incredible well we we engineered an environment that was and we we informed each other, and by doing so, we we're competitors in a tight market. But by teaching each other the skills, we upped our game and fast. It, it it's counterintuitive. You wouldn't think you'd want to share anything with your competitor, but when you're starting from the ground level, that's the fastest way for everybody to grow. And the shows were competitive. I mean, uh, there was a limited amount of money, especially in high-end product. And, and you went there to, uh, you know, you went there to have the money fall on your table. Sure. So, sure. Well, and that's the unique, you're, you know, all those years I was doing shows while you were there and whatnot, I mean that is what's so unique is it, it is a, everyone there really are competitors in a, in a, in, in a technical sense. Obviously we're all, like you say, trying to get the, some of the same dollars on our table, but that's where it's so incredible because then you set that aside at lunch, you're out talking to a guy and you're literally showing them how you did something yeah. on one of your knives or in one of your patterns that's sitting on your table at that moment that you're trying to sell. Um, so it's really a cool, really a cool atmosphere. It, 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 uh, it was kind of an unspoken rule back then that, that there weren't any secrets that you shared. Mm -hmm. Um, once a lot of people started coming in, then, uh, then it, it, it didn't, it didn't narrow down, but it, you obviously had your friend network and a lot of people were not in that network. 
When, uh, when, when, you know what it takes. When did that in happen? In order to get in that network. Huh? Well, I'm sorry. So, when, when you when you say like a lot of people started coming in, like what kind of years did you start to really see this thing grow? Where you were going to shows and it was like, man, I don't know a lot of these guys, you know? Oh, well, yeah, probably. See, I, I, I did my first show in 78. Um, so... Uh, I would say, I would say the the mid eighties to mid nineties was mm-hmm. the biggest was the biggest spurt. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a lot of. Uh, we started. We were in New York. We were doing shows in New York, which, when you get in the press uh, in New York, it's a big deal. I mean, it's it's. Uh, you know, we had write-ups in Wall Street Journal. We had uh, Esquire magazine. You know, a lot of stuff happened. You know, very quickly. Mm-hmm. So that that caused uh, an influx of of new customers, new interest, and you know, people were attracted to it. Sure. Um, I think Ashoka numbers went from like. I want to say 25 the first year to, I don't know, a couple hundred in that period of time. Wow. And, well, anyway, Schwarzer came up with a thing when people started uh, pestering you, is the way he put it. Uh, you had to have a ticket in order to, you know, in order to get a free flow of information. And your ticket was something cool. Whatever you made, if it was cool, you you were you put in your time, you know, and you know the the, the door was open. Hmm. So and that that included uh, a lot of people, a lot of new people. Sure. And we started get we started getting uh, people from Europe. Uh, you know the good Smiths, uh, just part of the gang. Sure. At what at what point did you feel like? Um... Or do you, or now do you feel like you're, um, I mean, cause when I, when I look back, I've never seen, I've never seen a, a, a bad Don Fogg knife. <laughs> I mean, everything <laughs> I've ever seen of yours is, is just in incredible works of art, um, from a design standpoint, uh, carving, um, I mean, just artistically, there's multiple dimensions to your knives. It's not just a really cool piece of steel with a handle stuffed on it. Um, well, thank you, Josh. Where did that art form really, was that just something that you kind of just feel like was naturally in you or did you have some people, you know, there's the Damascus part, but did you have some people influence you quite a bit in your, like your carving and some of your artistic abilities back then? Well, yeah, I, I had a partner for the, for uh, about 15 years, who was an incredible artist, Murad Sayan. And uh, I didn't even understand uh, the language of line. I didn't understand, I did no artistic sense whatsoever. I was an English major. And uh, Murad, I partnered up with him. He was making uh, hunting knives. But I partnered up with him, and all of a sudden, I realized this guy is a 
is a, uh, you know, he is an artist. He's, mm-hmm. he's a photographer. He's a oil painter. He's a, you know, sculptor. Mm-hmm. And through my association with Murad, I was suddenly opened up to like, oh, this stuff is, this stuff has more dimensions than I'm even seeing. It's got, it's like a, you know, it's there are so many levels to the work that uh, that that I could explore, that I could go in, and it opened me up. It, it, it I, I learned on my own pieces by if I didn't like it, I took it off. If I if it, I, I didn't spend a lot of time with uh, paper and pencil mm-hmm. because it was more, uh, you know, I'm more in the flow of the things and. And I was learning, so I didn't know what to put down on paper. Sure. <laughs> you know, I had to make it in order to see it. Sure. So so it was a process of discovery in myself, you know. I was like, wow. And if it was, if it caught my eye and, it, and I could see, and I could, I would study it. Mm-hmm. You know, I would study what makes, why is this catching my eye? What's making this, why is this? attractive and that's not mm-hmm. and I you know a basic <laughs> basic learning process uh, now that that partnership changing. with him was was what you you guys called your Kamal knives right yeah yeah Kamal knives what 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 was how did that name Kamal come about what does that mean um, uh, it basically it basically means peace um, we had uh we had been following uh, Sufism as a you know study, and kind of a one of the attracting attracting factors for us was that we shared similar you know similar consciousness and background. Sure, uh, not background. I mean, these uh, our backgrounds couldn't be any more dissimilar, but um, it was a you know philosophical foundation and for people who uh, have never who have never seen those knives and and you know again with the explosion of knife makers in the last 10 15 years i I would imagine there's really a lot of people if you're you know a lot of the people listening to these kind of podcasts and stuff are younger um you, you have to google kamal um kamal knives and 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 look at the the pieces of art that that you guys were making, you said that was over about a 15 year period. Yeah. yeah. And and what years were those Don? Just, uh, uh, or do you kind of remember when it ended? Uh, yeah. The first Gulf war. <laughs> oh really? Okay. So around like 91, <laughs> maybe. that was when it's over. Yeah. Um, so it would have been, yeah, it would have been, uh, his son, uh, his son was born uh, while we when we first got started, and he's just turned forty. So, sure. All right, I can backtrack again. Where would that make it? Well, I think that was the wasn't that eighties, early nineties, early eighties. Yeah, yeah. The Gulf War was around ninety ninety one. So, yeah. Right. Um, so kind of through the, basically through that whole decade of the eighties, you were, and were you guys kind of, how did you, 
I mean, not everything you were making then was a was a Kamal knife, right? Um, you, you, no, you were doing some exclusive stuff on just your own as well. Yeah, just a few pieces. I I, I really had too much to learn. I mean, it wasn't a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it wasn't, and I and I I was focused on the adventure, and it was going fast. You know, it was, uh, uh, yeah, it was going fast. So I, di- I didn't make that many knives on the side. I did a few. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, not like I, yeah. It seems like that arrangement, arrangement really allowed you to really continue pursuing that, that, that passion of that steel and the blades. And then, yeah. you yeah. know, really when I think about the time that you put into a knife, once you're done forging, say, or, or uh, grinding, um, there's still a lot of time left. So, I mean, I can see where oh. if you can eliminate the rest of that time, pass it off, and go back to work, um, it really doubles, if not more, the well, amount was, of exploration you adi- could do. Yeah, that was my advantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the disadvantage was that that uh, that's all, you know, I didn't learn the handle skills. Mm-hmm. I didn't learn the, you know, design and construction. I was focused on one thing for mm-hmm. about ten years. Sure. Yeah. Um, then, when Marad and I uh, stood up, I had to start all over. <laughs> sure. That was that was a long period of time too. Sure. Because I couldn't come in, I couldn't come in at a beginner level with the handles. I mean, my, my blade work was way beyond that. So. Sure. And my customer base was, you know, I had to, I had to recreate my customer base as well. Sure. So. Now, what was the reason for you guys kind of splitting up? Was it just kind of a time, just time to go sep- kind of separate ways or? Yeah. Yeah. Basically, I, I, I think we, yeah, basically it was time time to go separate ways. He, mm-hmm. he wanted to do other things. He, he, uh, and I, I, you know, it was, yeah, just time. Sure. We sure. Had, it, it's sort of like, it's sort of like we had, uh, played all our tunes and we weren't will, willing to go back and do, uh, reruns. Sure. You know, it was one of a kind, one at a time. Right. Right. We ran, we ran the music out. Now, so you talk a little bit about, I mean, at this point now we're into the early nineties. Um, and so the Damascus patterns have gotten to a, a really high level. Um, you know, and one of the patterns that we see so much these days, that seems like, I mean, I'd say most Damascus patterns I see these days, are a variation of the W's pattern. Um, yeah. Talk yeah. about the W's pattern and kind of when you first saw that pattern, when you first did it, and, and you know, in, in the podcast I did with Rick, he, you know, one thing he pointed out is he's like, it's not crushed W's, it's W's. <laughs> and, right. you know, he's got kind of his thing about that, but, you know... I, I would like well, you to I kind of cover I, that a little bit. Yeah, I think it was, uh, to me, it was a 
one of those uh, mistakes that, that that was pretty. And by mistakes at the time, I was I was going pretty fast. Everything was laminated, straight laminates, other than mosaics. Uh, it was straight laminates or you know mosaics. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, I was going pretty fast. I'm making up a billet, and I got the handle orientation wrong somewhere in the process. Uh, instead of working on the flat, I ended up working on the edge. You know, after a bill has been drawn out a few times, it's, sure. you know, it's hard to tell sometimes. Easy to do. Yeah. And uh, easy to do. And uh, I drew out the bar of steel, the ground that matched it, and drove immediately down to Jimmy's shop to figure out what the hell I had done. <laughs> and together, <laughs> because it was pretty. Yeah. And it was it was it was visually interesting. Had you restacked it at and this point, or was it just kind of the initial? It it was the initial billet that got twisted the wrong way, and it and then folded back on itself. Sure. Uh, and so uh, we devolved it, and then I said, "Well, I'm going to do that intentionally," and then I started running with it. Well, what what it did to my head was just go boom. Okay, so if I do this, you know, I'm not limited to inscribed ladder patterns or bullseyes. Right. What you get out of a a straight lamina. (laughs) Now, I realize that any change in aspect while that billet's being worked is going to affect the the pattern. Sure. And you can manipulate it. Now, some of these guys are doing. I mean, crazy stuff. There's a guy down here in Portland, Jason Morrissey. That's he's doing crazy stuff. Yeah. Uh, but I, and, you know, a lot of guys. I don't know who. I don't know what's on the market right now. But mm-hmm. no, there's several anyway, guys. That's what, there's several guys out there doing, and and a lot of it with the the W's pattern, whether it's Marekko Malmasi or Salem Straub or you know, there's. I mean, on there's dozens of guys that are just doing some yeah. blow away work, you know? Well, I knew it was a success. I made a, I made up a, uh, I made up a small, a small dagger out of it, took it to the New York shore and it was frantic when it got on the table. The, the, there was a guy waiting at the door. He says, you don't, I have to have that. And there were other <laughs> people and it was like, I said, okay, I got a winner here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you kind of just I mean, they used started to, running with that those, W's those, pattern. Yeah, I played with it. I played with it quite a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, but but uh, again, what it did was it it changed uh, it changed my way of looking at what could be done. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd seen the the twist patterns in the in the barrel, and you know, about that same time, Daryl Mayak he showed up at. Uh, at the girl show one year with a tile that he lopped off his billet that uh, just blew my mind. I had no idea how he did it. Absolutely no idea. And he, what he had done was uh, taken and made a blunt crosscut or squeeze all of the layers down to a point and then folded it back together and then welded it and it became a seamless mosaic. 
that had never been done before. I was like, wow, hmm. damn, this is endless. Yeah. I had a run. I had a run where I made variations. Never made the same billet twice for I don't know how many years. It wasn't any point. I was like one thing would lead me to think about another. A lot of those got chucked because they didn't turn out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of them. <laughs> so was it was it you that then said, I'm going to call this W's? Yeah, I called it W's. Yeah. You heard Jimmy did. I don't know why. In those books that you had seen on, you know, things back in history, did you ever see anything like W's? Like when, once you got to looking, did you realize like, oh, no. 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 I saw, I, I tell you one of the interesting patterns, uh, you know, People that played with patterns that were interesting were the Indo- Indonesian, the Chris's. Mm-hmm. They were doing some wild stuff with patterns. Mm-hmm. And some of those I'd never figured out. Hmm. Oh, it looks like we lost Don here. We're going to give him a call back. Lost you there, buddy. Yeah, that's all right. It happens. Um, so you said you never did figure out some of those, um, some of those patterns that you'd seen. You'd no. Seen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I worked with a. I worked with a kid down in Alabama. He's dead now. Didn't get in. He did never made enough to get into the market, but did wild work. Uh, Name. That's awful. And we used to come over to the shop and beat out steel. And he was trying to do it. He, he made a thing, a, a ribbon pattern that was basically just drew it out, uh, a bar of steel out to a uh, like half inch width mm-hmm. and four feet long. And then, and then like ribbon candy, he folded it back and forth on itself and then butt welded it. Butt welded it. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and w- I think what a lot of you know we need to remember is I mean and at a certain point here I'm sure at, at, at probably at this point you had a power hammer but a yep. lot a lot of what was happening for quite a while most of these guys was was handwork right in yeah I I think I was I was behind a lot of guys because I you know a power hammer cost me a lot of money back then I didn't have so yeah. Um, now most people that got into it realize you needed power equipment. Sure. Jimmy came up with the hydraulic press, which you know you guys took off with. Uh, Jimmy Fikes came up with that. Yeah. He, he I went down to his shop and he converted a log splitter, figuring it would it would uh, sure work. And then once he saw the log splitter and what it could do and couldn't do, he built his own. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 incredible, and that's and that's a big reason I wanted to talk to you. Is it's, you know, it's it's really cool. And you alluded to it a year ago, and it stuck with me when you said, you know, when I was talking to you about doing these interviews or an interview about about the beginning, is um, kind of as you were considering, you said it's it's pretty rare that you can literally go back to the beginning of something and talk to the yeah. people that were involved in the beginning. And now we see, 
you know, we're, we've gone so far down the road now that people are making W's patterns and they're calling them crush W's and all this different stuff when, and, and they don't even have, they don't have a clue where it came from or how it came about, but, but we still have the ability to call and talk to the guy that came up with it on the phone, which I think is really cool. I mean, well, it, it's cool from my perspective to see this whole thing grow. I mean, it's, I mean, it's remarkable. Uh, what's that it, like? It, 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 I mean, what's that like in your mind? I mean, here you're, and you obviously still have a really good memory. You're remembering these hammer-ins and these guys' names and what, what you were doing and when. And what is it like to, you know, I, I know you're not super active anymore as far as in the knife making, but. I mean, not very many years ago, and you, and you're still going to, and we'll get into, um, you know, like the school that you're going to and teaching that, or at least, at least stopping in and saying hi and stuff. But, um, what's yeah, that New like? School metalwork. Yeah, the New England School metalwork, right? What what's what's that like in your mind to think about? Like, really, this literally came from, you know, a half dozen of your guys' shops, right? <laughs> yeah well it's 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 just uh it's a, it's phenomenal really and 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 i like to think that our you know when we set it when we started out we decided to have uh, some basic you know tenets and one is you know teach other people share it don't don't hoard this you know and and so it became that set a tone for, you know, for everything from then on. Um, I, I think that that's that's the that to me is uh, something that uh, that to see the fruit of that. Mm-hmm. I don't know where it's evolved to. I mean, I, I assume everybody's you know YouTubing now. And, well, but I I don't something. but I don't think so. I mean, that's. I was going to say, I think that's probably something that you probably be the most proud of, of anything in your career is that, that set the tone, um, that still stands today. Like, I mean, there's so many new knife makers, you know, my Instagram, um, you know, a year ago in January, I had 10,000 followers a year ago before that I was at like 3000 and now it's just about to break 19,000, which isn't anywhere near what a lot of guys have. But my point is, there's thousands of people and and I'd say of those followers a huge amount of those are knife makers that are following my stuff to try to learn or whatever and you constantly right. hear of those people being taught by by known known makers you know people who whether it's yeah. you know a master smith or a journeyman smith or or a guild member or or whatever um that that tone has been set where and, and I've actually done a few videos on my Instagram where I've I've basically said, you know, you may have found knife making through forged and fire, but this is how right. it works. Like we share our craft, yeah. we share things we learn. Like if you're gonna be in this world, don't just stay on YouTube, don't just get stuck on there. Go to guys' shops. You know, go right. go seek out information and then once you learn, um, share it you know, and, and help advance yeah. the craft. And I mean, yeah, there are two, two obligations. Uh, if you learn something, uh, from somebody, you have an obligation to share it. And the second is you have to give credit where you learned it Yep. because 
otherwise that you know that it's just not it's sort of a scientific you know the way the way they work in science they publish a paper and it's you know and 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 there's going to be a percentage in everything that we do that there's going to be a percentage of people that um you know don't yeah. don't don't yeah. share and and steal steal ideas or don't give credit or whatever but but really far and away in knife making people do that and uh it's the yeah it's the oddball that does that and they and and usually people find out about it right you know it's not a, socially it's not acceptable and I've actually found it I, I and I won't name his name but one guy in particular at the Atlanta Blade show when I was like 16 and I was I was a sponge at that point, asking everybody everything, being probably an annoying little bastard. But um, I was asking, you know, one guy in particular about something, and he basically said, you know, it's for me to know and you to f- find out. But basically, he wasn't. He was kind of known as somebody who didn't share, and he was quite a bit better knife maker than I was at that point. And five years later, I was a way better knife maker than that guy, you know, in my yeah. early twenties. And yeah. I think that was two for two reasons. One, people I had a lot of people around me willing to share, and and I took that stuff and and um, you know, kind of ran with it and it was able to convert it into some pretty nice work. And then number two, I think the other reason I passed him up so fast is he was kind of known as that kind of a guy. So guess what? People didn't share with him, and so yeah. he ended up kind of stagnant, making his own little thing over and over for five years. Well, a lot of these yeah. guys that were teaching me things back then were also teaching each other stuff. And, you know, some of those guys I never caught, you know, that they, they were teaching me stuff. But while they were teaching me stuff, they were also learning things and they were advancing, Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that it, really all it, comes down to guys like you and Schwarzer and Rob Hudson and Hank Nickmeyer, um, you know, and the yeah. list goes on. <laughs> guys that yeah. were willing to share you know there's a good there's a good bunch of guys still is yeah so you know kind of going on i guess we get into the 90s and that's really where i met you and um and i remember you had gotten a little later into the say mid to late 90s you had reached a point where um obviously you were super well known in the knife world and super respected and and you started coming out to montana teaching at rick dunkerley's shop and and yeah, that was remember fun. you had a huge influence on um not only Rick but you know that whole group of guys which you know kind of got termed um by Schwarzer the Montana Mafia talk about that yeah. time and kind of those guys and and that feeling of what was happening there Don That was that was uh, an intentional confluence uh, confluence of of uh people at that time intentional in that the guys in Montana wanted to up their game. So they picked guys in the community that they wanted to learn from and invited them out there. And it worked. (laughs) I had a hell of a good time. I really enjoy, I enjoy all you guys and, and, uh, still do. And it was, uh, it was exciting because you know, you were, eager to learn and and had good energy and good spirit. Um, it was like meeting my friends for the first time. Sure. 
And and I think uh, I, I can't remember you had yeah you had those four guys right uh, Schwarzer, uh, yeah Nick Meyer come out Nick Meyer came out Al Dippold um, Rob yeah. Hudson was out here um, yeah you know a, among other guys uh, and it was it was guys you know really I was the kid of the group I mean I was sixteen seventeen right in there fifteen um, but Rick Dunkerley was largely responsible for kind of putting it on at his shop, at least in the beginning. And then Shane Taylor, um, you know, it was really a group of guys, Shane Taylor and Wade Coulter, uh, Rick Dunkerley, Barry Gallagher. Those were kind of the core group. And then we had other guys, um, you know, Ed Shemp, Bob Bob Kramer. Yeah, Yeah. Bob Kramer out of Washington was coming out. And, you know, and then we also had some gatherings at, at Shane Taylor's. I know... I think it was mostly Schwarzer that came to his place. Schwarzer and Shane became friends. Um, I don't know that you ever went to Shane's. No, I, I never made it to Shane's. I, I think you had to like to shoot and blow things up. To, yeah. Up well, and you have to go to the end of the earth and then drive another hour to get to Shane's house. <laughs> so it's kind of a trip. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that group of guys was, it was really wise on their part um, I can't really take credit for it because I was the I was the just the person the sponge that was there getting to kind of reap the rewards of it. But those guys were um, really. I found a picture the other. I found a picture the other day. Of you and I playing basketball in your yeah basketball court. <laughs> yep, you were a heck of a basketball player. I have a picture of you uh, shooting a fadeaway over me. <laughs> it's kind of cool, but uh, yeah, no, it's um. I don't know. It was a really exciting time and it was smart on those guys' part because they were all um somewhat in the beginning of their of their craft. They'd been making knives for a while, but then they'd kind of discovered Damascus and and they were trying to move move forward and advance and and it was smart because like Rick said, selfishly he was putting those on. He just invited guys he wanted to learn from and he was trying to basically right. get all his friends to to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> It was very clever, and, yeah. and it and it worked, and it worked. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the uh, uh, it worked for all parties. I think we all talk about those times, and and, uh, and you need to be that way. And you, it, it, you have to it, you have to you have to go out and seek your, seek the knowledge, in uh, any way you can. I have to imagine it was somewhat similar, um, in the feeling when you saw that group of people to to the group of guys that you and the kind of the excitement level and what you had going with the sharing and the learning and cause they were doing the it same thing big. from the stand, standpoint of, you know, figuring something out in their shop because people, I think people a lot of times think that just because we live in Montana, we all live next door. But I mean, Shane's right. shop was <laughs> seven hours from my house. I mean, yeah. you know, Wade Coulter's five hours away. So, you know, we only got together in a hammer in sense once, maybe twice a year. Um, and then at some of the various shows, but when they would figure something out in their shop, they were calling each other and telling each other and excited about it. And then taking those ideas and building on them, you know? Yeah. It has to be a bit similar to what you guys were doing. It was, it, it felt exactly like that. Like when I started, that's why I was so happy about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was ex- it was the same kind of energy and same kind of excitement. 
and uh, and it's fun. Sure, it's hard to it, it's hard to believe that a job is dirty and dangerous and nasty as what we choose to do can be fun, but it's actually a lot of fun. Sure, so, I mean you get the you know you get the cuts and the bruises. Some guy get really hurt. Now, kind of moving into that time period, say into the late nineties, um, early two thousands, from what I remember, because I was on there a lot. Um, you know, the internet at some point in all of this had been invented. Um, yeah, uh, somewhere yeah. along the line, and you know, what's incredible about you is that you saw, you saw potential there, and you were excuse the pun, but I mean, you were on the cutting edge when it came to websites and, and the internet and computers and you started a forum, um, and your website called, uh, what was a cup of coffee was your forum, right? Yeah. And yeah, you started putting up information and I, I don't know, basically you created a place on this, this weird internet thing where you could go and ask a question or, or, or seek out a question, search for something learn about heat treating or or Damascus and really provided from what I remember the first place in the knife world that you could go and use the internet as a tool to learn. Right. How did that come along? Well, well, I I saw the potential, uh, you know, early on, I I was always interested in computers, but you know, once the internet started becoming real, uh, I saw the potential for, not for everything. I mean, it 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 it, it was uh, it was able to graphics, pictures, and you know, it was just exciting. You didn't have to wait on a magazine once a month to get your stuff out for people to look at. You didn't, mm-hmm. you, didn't, you know, uh, the forums, the the forum idea spun up out of a uh, what they call them back user group. I had a user group for a while, and then that became dated. So. I moved to a uh, internet enabled forum uh, format and uh, that, that became a whole community in and of itself from people could be anywhere in the world mm-hmm. and could join, share, uh, post their stuff. Uh, and it was, it was, an, it was just as dynamic as the physical thing in, in a lot of ways. And people became very close. They became friends. Mm-hmm. I got invited to go to, you know, England. To, you know. Uh, it was incredible. So. And I mean, it. I don't know or if you can recall or if you had the statistics on, you know, how many hits a month you were getting on that website at its peak. But, I mean, it was, yeah, it had it to was, have been, it had to have been enormous because everybody I knew that, wasn't a dinosaur that actually had a computer was on it. I mean, if you were in a knife making, you were getting on there and reading it. And it was, it was, it was, I think it was one of the things that people don't talk about today um, or don't even know. uh, But I know everybody that was making knives back then know that it was, I think, hugely responsible for the advancement of, you know, bladesmithing you know, to where we are today. Well, I took advantage of the, of the format for sure. I think the, I think it was running right around a half a million a month when it was at its, when I got out of it. 
which is incredible because it's incredible because it was, uh, it was, you know, there weren't that many necessarily that many users of the internet back then, especially in our kind of craft, you know, you figure kind of blue collar welding and grinding and cutting and, and there wasn't social media. There wasn't really a reason to be on the internet for a lot of, a lot of these kind of guys, but, but it, you know, there, there wasn't, you didn't go on and cruise the daily news and a lot of stuff back then. Um, it was, it was just incredible, you know, the forethought that you had and, um, and what's it called today, Don? Cause I know the name changed. I think it's a bladesmith forum. Yeah. And, and who it's runs still, that? It's still running. Yeah. Who's running that today? Uh, Dave Stevens, uh, I, tr- I turned it over to Dave Stevens. He's a, he's a uh, businessman out of Alaska mm-hmm. and, uh, the moderator's been Alan, uh, no, don't do this. Well, it, it's been well moderated for years, but is all the old content that was on there back then Longmire. still, still up Longmire, Alan Longmire. I think it's still there. Yeah. 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 I don't know where. No, it goes back. Goes back when? Jesus. Oh, it's years, twenty-five huh? years. I mean, I've. Yeah, it's twenty-five years ago. Um, no, it was a it was a really cool place. I mean, there were people. I I know a lot of knife makers would check into it daily. Um, it yeah. really was kind of like the name said. It was kind of your cup of coffee in the morning, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it uh, it it was it was. It needed to happen. It had the tools there. Um, and obviously there was interest. I think it's, you know, that's the surprising thing is that this archaic, uh, uh, obsolete craft has struck a chord with so many other people. You know, it's, it, it, it's I think it's wonderful. It's good sure. for the human spirit. <laughs> sure. Now, kind of going back just a little bit, um, what, what year did you get your master smith stamped on uh, yeah i got the I, I, they 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 were issued at the new york show uh i got i was in the first batch mm-hmm. and i, I want to say 79 maybe or 80 i, I don't I'd, I'd have to check the abs site now, did you um, did you actually have to test at that point, or did they kind of just say, "Okay, this group of makers is going to be our first group"? No, we had to we had to we had to submit uh, we had to yeah we had to test we had to form forge certain blades. Uh, and who judged it? Bill Bill Moran by himself. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, isn't that kind of an interesting thing to think about that one person, I mean, somebody well, had to be the we, first. I mean, it was, it was in, um, and nothing against Bill. I mean, the, the American Bladesmith Society has done some wonderful things for sure, but it's an, it's just an interesting thing to think that like, you know, some, like one, one guy had to kind of be the guy to say, okay, you're, you're it, you know? Well, yeah, it, it had to start somewhere. Right. We, we had all talked. We had all talked about it. In fact, we all uh, we'd all talked about what would be the criteria. I mean, it was it was open discussion between. Was it? You know, yeah, because it was something we want. We wanted to set some standards. 
Mm-hmm. And and so, uh, you know, what would those standards be? Sure. And so, you know, it, it was it didn't come up out of uh, it wasn't somebody's you know midnight thought. It was uh, right. it developed over a period of months, and you know, uh, and it has evolved. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's you know now it's uh, now it's pretty pretty firm in, in how it's handled, but it has raised the standards. Mm-hmm. And anybody that goes that goes through the testing process will realize that that they have to up their game. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I would say and you know it, you you hear different people say like oh the standards should be raised or harder or or whatever as far as the knives that you you put in there. And, and I guess my, my thing is, is I, I guess you could say that, but to me, you really only limit your own, yourself to your own idea of, you know, just cause they, you know, the same amount of knives and the, and the same dagger is, uh, is required. There's, you, you see guys that go in there and, and pass with the minimum quality and the minimum standard. And then you see guys go in there taking, taking the knives that are required and just absolutely trying to blow it away which is really which is really cool i mean they they even though some of the guys that test for that and pass now kind of i would say could probably technically pass that test pretty easily they still you still see guys push themselves to their absolute personal limit which i think that's kind of the point that's the whole point you know that's exactly the reason to do it and to have it Mm -hmm. it's uh you know, if you're going in just to get another, you know, credential on your card, it's not going to, it's not going to mean anything. It's not going to mount anything. Well, it's, and I, and I tell you, people it's a personal, it's kind of a personal journey. I mean, especially at this point, I, I would say back in the eighties the and nineties, early nineties, when you pass that, or even late, when you pass that master Smith test, it might mean more for your business from an, let's say an automatic order standpoint, you know, you, you, I, I remember back when we were doing shows, you had collectors that only collected master Smith knives. Right. But, but now, I never, now I don't necessarily, you know, think that going and passing your master Smith test is going to just change your business overnight, but it's more of that personal accomplishment and that personal, um, you know, feeling of taking that goal on, and, and feeling like you yeah. go and do your absolute best on it. Yeah, that's the way to approach it. Otherwise, you're not going to learn anything. Mm-hmm. If you you're know? doing if you're doing that test for for someone else's reasons or or uh, you know to change your business or you change your bank account, you're going to probably be pretty disappointed. If you're in knife making for a business, you ought to rethink your business plan. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, so tell me about like there's some at some point in your career you kind of decided to go a little more traditional, uh, if that's the right word. You got rid of your belt grinders, some of your power equipment, and you got into yeah. like, hand scraping blades. You got into swords and 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 let's talk a little bit in that. You know, you it seemed like you kind of dove pretty deep into the heat treating and and salts and. Um, so kind of talk about some of that time period, Don. Yeah. Um, I started getting, I started getting interested, interested in Japanese work. I mean, I, I'd always been interested in it, but I didn't understand it. 
and uh, I got led back to it through uh, the temple lines, the hamons, and I started experimenting with that. Well, learning how to put a uh, a good hormone on a on a blade is uh, heat treating uh, not one on one. It's heat treating one or two, mm-hmm. and it goes on from there. Uh, <clears throat> and I realized that I didn't that I had to rethink everything I was doing. So I so I did, and I went from just get it hot and quench it to you know, salt, salt, uh, hot salts, uh, and got into polymer quenching. So I got into, you know, deep into the world of. How did you discover salt? I mean, you know, for, uh, for someone who's course. discovered this whole. Al Pendry. Okay. Al Pendry. Al Pendry had started using salts because he was working with a metallurgist. Uh, Dr. Verholden out of the University of Iowa. Mm-hmm. And in order to have controls over the experiments they were running, they were trying to reproduce uh, Woot's steel, which is a totally different than laminated steel. It's a crystal in, it's a crystal in Damascus that's, uh, I don't know how long, like we could go on forever. We could pick a side street. Yeah. <clears throat> but anyway, in order to get the controls that were acceptable to Verhoeven, uh, Pendry started using salt. And he brought it up, uh, showed us the controls that he had and what, he, what was required, and even made up tubes for us. Hmm. So we could all go back and create. Again, it's the sharing thing. But the result of that was that we suddenly now knew and could ask questions of uh, a uh, nationally renowned metallurgist, which changed the ball game completely. Sure. And opened another another crash course for yours truly. Well, and Doctor right. Doctor Verhoeven, he. I mean, his work is still being referred to today, put into books. Uh, Laren Thomas, Devin Thomas's son, is a is a metallurgist and just came out with a book. And you know, a lot of his studies, a lot of Laren's studies, refer back to Verhoeven and, and the work that he had done. Oh yeah, I was lucky early on. Another uh, another metalsmith, another metallurgist. Uh, Cyril Stanley Smith took an active interest in Damascus making and steel work back in the 70s. And he was out of MIT. And, uh, you know, he, he, he was very helpful to me. He actually came to my shop, looked at some pieces that I was working on. So it's, it's funny, the professionals that, you know, well, I, I went to England. Uh, Owen Owen Bush invited us invited us American Smiths to come over to England to teach to do hammering, and 
he had connections to the British Museum. So we got to go into the archives and handle medieval swords from the era. <laughs> sure. Which was way, way cool. The, the, the point being that once we started really, really getting involved in this craft and the work, pro, you know, proceeded to a certain level, then we started attracting professionals, other people that were, had spent their life studying archaeology, metallurgy. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was quite exciting. Sure. Well, in the high temperature salts, those are, they're, they're again, stuff that you guys were just breaking into at that point have become really the norm and, and, and has advanced. I mean, now they make special equipment. I mean, they make, you know, (laughs) make kilns that are specifically designed to hold salt pots, you know, and now they're, now they're using sand, um, instead of salt, you know, infused, uh, sand with infused air. Uh, what night is it? Nitrogen. I'm trying to, yeah. 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 Uh, you know, and, and the idea of salts for people that don't know is, is, you know, if you, if you figure you're, you, you heat something with a torch or with a flame, uh, you know, you can overheat really thin areas, really bad. Uh, the thicker areas of a piece maybe aren't even close to temperature yet. Um, it's really hard to become, to get, to get things really even where when you, when you have a 1500 degree vat of salt and you, and it's liquid at this point, um, and you put that blade down in it, um, it can sit in there for two hours. And if the salt is 1500 degrees, you know, the entire blade is going to be that exact, that exact temperature. You have, you have control, precise control at, and, and it allows you to, to learn your steel across the entire spec. Soak times. I mean, it's, it just opens up a whole range of things. Sure. All right, Don. Well, um, you know, I think we've covered pretty much everything on here. Um, we've gone through the heat treating and, um, you know, the, the Japanese stuff that you did and, and the, and, you know, the artwork that you did with, um, Kamal, uh, Damascus. Um, is there, is there anything else on here? Um, I'm, I guess what I kind of want to ask you about, I guess a little bit is where we're at currently today and what you see, if there's any particular makers or um, just kind of what your thoughts are of the current state of, of knife making. I know we've kind of got the forged and fire world going on right now, which that's kind of a whole nother subject in itself, but um, just kind of what your thoughts are on today's current state of the knife world. Uh well, to be honest, Josh, I've been out of it, the knife world, for oh, almost ten years. So i i really I really only know what's going on through conversations with friends. Um, you have a better idea of it than I do. Um, it's growing, obviously. Uh, the TV shows and uh, you know, the movies and all of the drumbeat that's been going on in the media have dramatically grown the market. Um, 
and the interest in the craft. I mean, I my connection, I guess, would be through the New England School of Metalworking. And when I moved to Maine a few years ago, I I was interested in teaching and uh, became close with the, the school, and we started expanding the bladesmithing program. And really, that's because COVID shut it down, but uh, it, it was amazing the people, uh, the response to the classes. I mean, people are uh, genuinely interested in wanting to learn. So uh, I found that to be exciting. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that. up the the New England school there again. Um, I, I kind of wanted to have you actually talk just a little bit about that because I, you know, we do find so many knife makers trying to learn off of YouTube or, or, you know, which, which is fine, but, but more concerning is that they're think they're learning how to really actually make knives for real off of forged and fire. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting because when I met you and, and people in your era and, people in my era for the most part when I was learning you you pretty much had to go to a knife shop or you had to find a find a maker in your area um or go to a knife show uh, there, there really wasn't the ability to just um, and you know there were a, a couple books here and there but um now you can really learn to make knives pretty much sitting on your computer at home um you know it's kind of mind-boggling and there really is some amazing information out there and and really a lot of that started with you and your forum as we talked about earlier but I don't think there's ever there's just no replacement for being in front of a of a a master smith or a a, you know a bladesmith or knife maker teaching in person and being able to get that interaction that feedback Um, and I think schools like you know, the ABS schools and for sure the New England school are, are critical. Um, what, what, what are the, what are the class styles yeah. like there? Uh, yeah, they brought in a lot of different instructors and each instructor uh, has a different, you know, interest and approach. I think the advantage to, uh, to, to taking a class is that it's one thing to to see it on on uh, YouTube or you know uh, read a book about it, but it's quite another to actually you know do a hands-on experience, mm-hmm. and that's where the questions come up, and they're questions you can't even know about until you go through the process. Sure. So hands-on hands-on is really critical. Um, I mean. I couldn't have learned as rapidly as I did if I if I didn't have access to the teachers that I had. Uh, and and watching somebody do something is not the same as doing something. Uh, you 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 uh, you have the advantage of having an experienced person there to guide you through the process. So you so uh, when you do come to a stumbling block, it's not insurmountable when you realize that that most of the time it's a process that can only be done step by step you're gonna you're when you first pick up a hammer 
guess what? You're not going to be able to forge like the guy on TV. Sure. It's, it's a whole new skill set and it's a whole new mindset. And having somebody that can walk you through it is very helpful. It, it, it uh, increases your, your, your awareness and improves your skills dramatically. Hammerins are the next best thing where you can go and see a smith and talk to them individually. Mm-hmm. But it's the hands-on that, that you really, that you really get the growth. Sure. And, and, and for a week you can spend, you can spend an entire week with Rick Dunkel and pick his brain. Right. I mean, you, know, you really develop, <laughs> you really develop a friendship also throughout that stuff. You know, a lot of the times, which allows you to, maybe call on somebody when you're really stuck on something just randomly throughout the year. Um, that's, that's the other side of it. It, it, it is, uh, it is a network of, of, uh, friendships mm-hmm. and they, and, uh, it's, uh, it can be formed. It can be formed in the cyber world, but it's cemented in the real world. Uh, uh, I noticed, you know, I had that experience when I started the forum, you know, I started having people, you know, come back repeatedly. And then you notice, you know, you notice, uh, similarity in the coalescence and then the peoples that have really, uh, advanced with it from the cyber forums are, uh, you know, they got together and had a hammer and or they, pulled instructors in in Owen Bush uh, in England, which was, you know, they had the archaic and then they, and there wasn't any middle ground. And Owen Bush decided that he would bring instructors to England. And he had Rick Furrer and Hank Nickmeyer and myself and Howard Clark. And by the end of it, they now have a active and uh, dynamic group of people, Smiths that are they ca- it caught on fire. But it's the it's the hands on, it's the personal. Sure, it, it it brings it into the real world. Sure, um, and the whole process is is you know learning you know learning about yourself and gaining confidence in what you can do and. And, uh, it's just a wonderful process. Yeah. Well, like I say, I mean, and we, I think we've kind of, we've kind of shown here and covered here. I mean, thanks to you and, and y- you know, a, a handful of makers back then, um, that, that feeling of sharing and, and teaching and whatnot has carried, has really carried through even as, as much as the knife world's changed. I mean, like you kind of alluded to just in the last 10, ten years you've been re- retired the, the knife world might have changed the most in those last 10 years i mean it's just been an explosion you know right um right but even throughout that whether whether they know it was don fog that came up with w's damascus or whether they know it was you guys that had kind of some of the first hammer ins um you know a lot of these people don't know that but they still continue to do that stuff um, even though maybe they don't know really where it where it originally spurred from, um, but it's a testament to kind of your guys's vision, your vision, um, 
you know, Fikes and Schmidt and, and all you guys, um, Bill Moran, you know, um, everybody back then, you know, and I, it's, it's incredible. And I, and I think it's, it's an achievement and that's, that's kind of where I wanted to kind of end was asking you a, a couple things. One, is there a particular knife as you look back and I've kind of, I've kind of wondered this cause people always ask me or not always, but I mean, people have asked me, you know, what's the favorite knife you've made or whatever. And it's, you know, it's, in general, it's kind of my last one. I mean, hopefully if your work is getting better, you seem to like your work more and more. And then the more you look back on your older work, the less and less you like it. (laughs) And, and I remember, you know, right now I can look back at knives that I was, you know, really, really proud of and, and think, Oh my God, I would never turn that out now. But is there a particular knife or two that you look back on that, that, you remember as, as, or that you think are kind of, you know, crowning knives of your career or, or, um, kind of statement knives that, that you're really proud of to this day. Uh, I do. I, 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 I don't have the similar experience. There have been breakthrough knives and, and the first one for me, I think would be in during the Kamal uh, when Murad and I started together. Uh, we got an order for a uh, for a fighter, and uh, I, I finished up a blade that it was as good as I could make at the time. And then I gave it to Murad, and he sat down, and what he came up with was uh, this dragon guard, this dragon head guard with a carved uh, handle mm-hmm. and uh, it, it was scales on it and a curled tail on the end. Yep. It was, I remember it was, it. yeah, it was like magic. All of a sudden I realized, okay, this is, this is a, this is a whole nother ball game right now. We, we can, we can take this and run with it. And that night, that knife started changed my whole uh, perspective on what I was doing, and uh, so I, I would say that would was a pivotal knife, and and uh, and then I remember when I got out on my own, I was kind of struggling because I, I, you know, I didn't have the skill base to compete with what Murad was doing, but I had this one collector that threatened to come to my house if I didn't finish. <laughs> so I was motivated, yeah. and uh, I uh, I did a I did a sword that I never got any good pictures of. I just shot it in the backyard, leaning up against a tree. But it had uh, uh, it had rivets and overlaid steel parts, and I mean it was it just put, I made. Uh, I think I made, I, I bought a lathe and I started making these rivets for it. And I can't remember how I, how many I made, but they were a bunch. And that one, when I finished with it, it was, uh, it was another genre. It was, for me, it was, you know, it wasn't historical. It was uh, an artifact. Sure. And yeah. And so that one would have been pivotal. And another one that, that stuck with me uh, 
I I uh, I had a I, I made a dagger and I started texturing. And once I once I saw the potential and the, the that that theme of textured steel on blades, that that opened up a whole vein for me. And I uh, you know I really enjoyed that. I think that culminated with a piece I did with Jim Kelso. I think he called it Life and Death. But mm-hmm. um, it was just when I got done, it was just like. I can't believe that yeah. process, you know, you know, it was, it changed me. Sure. So, didn't yeah, that, that original Kamal knife you were talking about, didn't that have a, a stone or something in it for an eyeball? Yeah. And, yeah. 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 I still yeah. remember that. And it had like, um, you know, I think it also had like a, a wooden sheath with it, didn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it, it was like, yeah, it was, we're here. This is what we're going to do. Boom. Well, and I have and to now. imagine it was just like, I mean, there's a lot of art knives and there's a lot of amazing art knives being built today, but back then it, it had to have been like yeah. nothing else that was being made. It had to have stood out <laughs> incredibly because <laughs> I mean, it still would stand yeah. out today, you know? Yeah. It, it, that's the thing about if you, if you, if you really, if you really nail it, if you, if you go on, if you're pushing yourself and you're going to come across those times when you get done and, you know, I'm as proud of, I'm as proud of the early pieces as I am of the later ones. I mean, they were, they were, they, they were milestones. Sure. And, you know, I can't say I remember every knife I made, but, Right. Uh, the you know the process was was to make to push yourself. The process was to learn more, to to do the best you can. Uh, that meant you know that wasn't profitable because that kind that kind of uh, of uh, experimentation and risk. There's a lot of failure in that. I mean, you go down a, you know, I've thrown away a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, And that's, and that's honestly, that's where it's really a struggle to be a full-time bladesmith these days. Cause if you're, you know, if you've got a $2,000 a month house payment and health insurance and kids and car payments and you know, that, that ability to really just sink into a piece of work and, and throw a, throw three guards away in a row and throw a handle away and you know you do find yourself in this kind of moral dilemma with yourself of needing to pay the bills and wanting to produce your best work and um, that can be a real struggle well you can't you can't you can't produce those pieces on demand those pieces come out of they're a pro they're the culmination of a of a process Mm -hmm. and and you do uh you know, like I think we talked about Hamones. Uh, I must have made, I don't know, 50, 50 small knives before I had worked through the process and had an understanding of what, what was going on. Mm-hmm. But those small knives were nice. I mean, they were beautiful. They, uh, sure. And they taught me on uh, each piece. And so I, you know, I don't discount 
I don't discount that work, but you gotta, you're right. It's a, it's a business when it comes, if you, if, if you're, if you have the freedom to work with, without financial considerations, I think you lose an, you lose an edge. Yeah. I think it needs to be that, that uh, pressure in order to add value to it. Sure. But I may be wrong. Sure. <laughs> I just, you know, Guys like Michael Walker seem to be doing just fine with their creative process. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I guess the, the, the last thing I'd like to know is, you know, your, your, your career's wrapped up. You've, you've made your stamp on the knife world. And, um, what is it when someone thinks of Don Fogg? I mean, what is it that you, you in your own words would want to be remembered for? you know, 20, 30 years from now when they look back at, you know, Don Fogg's career, what are you most proud of, Don? Uh, the teaching. Teaching? That, that, yeah, the teaching and the friendships that I, that I made through the craft. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really get, get, I get the most back from that. Sure. It's, it, you know, and seeing people, uh, I love to see people grow. I love to see people, you know, become who they could become. Right. Uh, and if I can help in any way, that's always, that's, that's always given me great, you know, great satisfaction. Sure. So, so what, honestly, uh, that would be it. Can you name, um, Maybe some either some books you've been in um, or publications or 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 like resources. If there's anyone listening that that wants to go back and kind of see either some of the stuff you've either written or or taught about, is there some mm-hmm. of that out there? Hey, I've done a I've done a I did a bit of writing for Blade Magazine, and they some of them they chopped up and put into small books, and mm-hmm. I'm not even aware of what's on there. Right. You know, on their library list. Um, I know I personally. I know personally from a Google search with your name, you can find some of that stuff. You know, yeah, that's probably yeah. the best through Google and the internet. Yeah. It's probably the best way to find a lot of that older material that's been written. Yeah. But the, the, the books, uh, when when you know, in in my in the heyday. There were, uh, uh, Jim Wire did a series of books every year. He'd come out with a book of uh, knives he photographed were primarily in it. But The Points of uh, Interest books? Points of Interest books. They were, they were classics. I mean, it, 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 it really chronicled the time of the, the beginning and the burst in creativity within the knife making. Sure. Um, the Knife Digest books, uh, what do they call them now? The Knives the, the Annuals. Annuals. Yeah. Knives the Annuals. Uh, Ken Warner was uh, the impetus behind that. He was working for Gun Digest, and he started including articles on custom knives, and then that spun up into the Digest. The Digest was sort of like how we all kept track of what everybody was doing. It was interesting. And, uh, it was a... It was a a resource of pictures and it was a phone book all in one. <laughs> yeah. It was, a, it was, it was really uh handy. 
Yeah. Well, that's that's something else that that uh, from the old days was uh, we. I remember Mel Pardew came to a hammer and he didn't he didn't demonstrate that what he did was he brought a list of of of, of suppliers mm-hmm. and uh, that we were all struggling to find stuff. Yeah. And Mel showed up with a list of businesses that would cater to small, you know, small purchases. And it was invaluable. It sure. was, at the time, it was, you know, okay, I can get small screws from this company. I can get. Right. No, that's stuff that people yeah. I don't, that just don't even, doesn't even cross their mind today. It's everything so readily yeah. available. And then honestly, those Knives Annual books were, you know, the, the back, that's why I kind of joked about it being a phone book. I mean, the back section of yeah. that had suppliers broke out. It had publications broke out and then, you know, knife makers by Guild and by ABS, um, yeah. which was yeah, incredibly it, handy to find a phone number. Or, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, I know I don't know how many people are going to listen to this, but don't call me. <laughs> I won't answer. <laughs> I'm retired. You don't want me to put your phone number out? <laughs> no, please. <laughs> it's it's out there, but I don't. You know, yeah. I I I I I love to help, but it's it's not my time anymore. Yeah. Well, Don, uh, I I greatly appreciate you taking you know this much time. I know it was it was kind of long, but I you're really the number one reason I wanted to start this. Um, you know, there's, there's some other guys, you know, Schwarzer and Meyer and some of those guys I've, I've kind of lined up, I'm going to be talking to here in the next couple of weeks. And, um, you know, it's, it's important to me to get your guys' stories out there. Um, you know, I can't thank you enough for what you did for me personally. And then for the guys who taught me and, uh, really if, if there's a knife maker that's listening to this podcast, you know, they're, they've directly been affected by you, even though, or, you know, I guess indirectly affected by you, even though they don't know it. So on behalf of the knife yeah. world, I just want to thank you for your contribution to, to our craft. Thank you, Josh. It's, it's been, it's been fun and I'm glad you're doing it. I mean, it's, it's a forgotten history. <laughs> it is. And it's like you said in the beginning, it's, it's really cool to, to be able to go back and talk to, you know, some of the very first people that were involved in something. So, um, yeah, it's really cool. And normally at this point, you know, we kind of give out websites or contact info if they're, you know, like with active makers, but I guess I'll just encourage people to, to go on Google, um, you know, go on the internet, uh, get those, get those older knives, annual books, or if you can find some of those points of interest books, um, you know, basically go back and just kind of see what, what Don and some of those other makers were doing. And, uh, you know, really, if anything else, have them, have them in the shop as a source of inspiration or research, you know, and, um, you know, sometimes one of the coolest things that people can do to honor a a maker from way back is to try to recreate one of their projects with their own spin, you know? Um, yeah, um, I know that's, I know that's been done before. So, uh, but anyway, that's, that's, that's basically what we did. We poured over. It's a, it's a um, visual, uh, you know, graphic uh, 
oriented business and you know you look at how other people did it and it, it's it's inspiring and and stimulating well so and i it's, would encourage that as well and it's incredible i always tell people and I, I you know i didn't come up with this i've heard it um i know i know rick has said it and others but uh y- you know y- you put in an entire career and you're retired and a lot of people that do that in whatever form of business they were in, a lot of their work just kind of disappears into thin air. Um, but you know, there'll be in, in a thousand years, a, a lot of the, the, the knives that you built will probably be in museums somewhere. I mean, they may be being studied as artifacts in 5,000 or 10,000 years. I mean, who knows? Um, but that's, that's really neat about even a guy that's making, making the most simple, $300 hunting knife, um, you know, we're, that's what's really neat about the knife world is we're, we're making stuff that gets passed down no matter how simple it is or how extravagant, um, y- you know, look at how many people have grandpa's old buck knife, you know, um, even though yeah. the blades broke off and it's all worn out, it's got a, it's got a story and it's got history to it. And especially these knives of the level you were making, um, that's gotta be cool to know that, those knives will live on long, long after your names, you know, and all of our names are gone, you know? Yeah. It, uh, yeah. That, it, 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 you think about the old time makers like uh, Skagel and Rudy Ruana. I mean, they're highly collectible now. Yeah. And, and, and it, they did good work. Yeah. It's, it's amazing with Ruana, you know, he was, I, I live right where he, where he lived, where he was making knives and, uh, literally basically in the same town. And, uh, people bring his name up to me all the time. And even though they don't even own one of his knives, they ask me, you know, you know, did you know the Ruana the, you know, so <laughs> the names live on along, you know, names and the knives kind of live on forever. So it's pretty cool. But, well, thank you, Josh. Yep. Thank you, Don. I really appreciate it. All right. It was fantastic having Don Fogg on. Uh, what an incredible, incredible human. It's it's hard to get across in a podcast. It's hard to explain it here sitting to you right now. Um, I, 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 I really can't. Um, I don't know if I really did a, a very good job or not trying to get a, across how I feel about that guy and, and, and the, the men that he kind of worked with and, and what they did for our industry. But uh, I appreciate you listening. Um I really would appreciate it if you'd go on and rate and review. Uh, that's important to do both the podcast. And uh, if you have any any questions, any suggestions, uh, something I can do better or, or makers you want to hear interviewed, uh, you can email the show. Um, it's Show at gmail.com. Um, go on, go up, go there, send me an email, let me know what you thought. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate you guys hanging out for this long. Uh, you can find me at Josh Smith Knives or my company at Montana Knife Company on Instagram. I have my website, joshsmithknives.com. So anyway, thanks again. Appreciate it. Uh, stay healthy and embrace the grind. <laughs>